Welcome, we're glad you're here, and uh, we saved all the smoke from last week for this week, <laughs> so you're welcome. Uh, my name is Brandon, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, we're glad you're here worshiping with us. Uh, we're in our series, Daniel. Last week, if you, were, if you came, was Church in the Park, and it was a blast, and uh, we had our whole church out at Pine Nursery. The weather was beautiful. Uh, bounce houses and games and food and all, all of that. It was great. It was a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful experience where just the whole, literally the whole church, both services come together and we just enjoy the outdoors. And so that was, uh, really was a, a great time. Uh, so for those who came, thanks for coming. Those who helped serve, thanks for, thanks for serving. We're, um, we're in our series, Daniel. We're jumping back in this morning. And uh, if this is your first time with us, welcome. Maybe you came to church in the park last week and you're like, okay, I want to come to church maybe. So this is week one. You're like, let me see what this is all about. Uh, maybe, maybe you just showed up today. You got invited by a friend. Um, let, me, let me just, just give a disclaimer. Um, t- today's topic is, uh, is very different than a normal topic. We're in Daniel and it's gonna feel like, am I in history class? Am I just getting lectured right now? And the answer is yes. Yes, you are in history class. <laughs> and so we're gonna go through chapter 11. Uh, I, I pray that you, you, if history is really not your thing, please, please bear with me to the end because it all, it all works out. It, it really, it, this, this chapter, um, I've talked to some of you and you've been waiting for us to get to Daniel 11 because you know what's coming. Maybe you read ahead. Um, uh, you, you, you know, you looked, you, re- you, you looked forward to the end chapters, like you read the last chapters before you got there. And, and you've been waiting for today. And so we're gonna jump right in. But before, before we do, I wanna ask a couple questions. First, how much does God know? I want you to answer that. Just, just talk to yourself quietly. And, and here's usually what your response is. Oh, everything. Okay. What is a part of everything? You say God knows everything. What does that mean, right? What does God know? What does he know about you right now? What does God know about the future, about future world kingdoms, about the political structures currently on earth? What does God know? All right. That's a little bit humbling, right? He knows all. Usually in theology, we say like, God knows all that can be known. Anything that can be known, he knows it. Okay, that anything. And, but then the second question is this. How much of God do you know? Now, that's a very different question. How much does God know? Okay, he knows all that can be known. How much of God do you know? maybe a little bit, maybe varying degrees, depending on who we're talking to or, or, or maybe how long you've been following the Lord or how close you are to him or how much you've studied or, or read about him, how much you talked to him, how much, like what your relationship was like, like all of that, our answers to that question is, is probably different. And we're gonna see there's a group in chapter 11 that is, is, um, is described for their knowledge of God. It's actually an incredible little line, little verse that shows up in the middle of this, this just in this really, really detailed and minute prediction about the future. So my um, my family and I we did uh, we did something that probably you all do or have done at some point in your life. A few weeks ago, we went camping. 
You guys ever been camping? Of course you have, right? And some of you are like, I should be doing it right now, but the smoke, you know, we got smoked out. <laughs> and, and, and like camping, I've like, we like camping. I like camping. It's great. It's fun. We pack up. But it, I've always thought like, this is weird. Because we, like for us, we own a perfectly good, insulated, cozy home. And what we do is we buy a bunch of extra stuff, put it in a truck, and drive it to the middle of nowhere to say, let's live here. Just a few days, just till we get really tired of it, right? And, and like, and you, and it doesn't, it, on paper, this does not sound great, right? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pack up a home. Oh, great. What's this going to be made of? The thinnest possible material you can find. And, and what are we going to eat? Oh, it's going to be like just snacks and stuff that isn't really homemade food, but is close. And we're going to cook it in some like, some like, some like rundown way to do it. Like, oh, we'll just get a fire and a pot. Or, all right, how are we going to get our coffee? Oh, we got a camp coffee. It's going to be subpar, but it will be coffee. Right? And we, and we have them, we like, let's go. All right, what are we going to do? We're going to bring the kids. Oh my gosh, the kids, we're bringing the kids to this. Okay. And, and what are we going to do? Are we, is there, is there going to be stuff there to do? No. We're going to show up. There's going to be a bench. There's going to be a picnic table. And that's it. And we're going to set up camp. It's going to be wonderful. What are we going to do at camp? We're just going to sit around a fire. What are we going to do around this fire? Nothing. We're going to do nothing, right? We're just going to look at each other. We're going to talk about stuff. We're going to pull out some chocolate and melt some marshmallows. And we're, and, and here's, and we're not going to shower ever, <laughs> right? Is there a bathroom? Maybe we'll find out when we get there. We'll make our own. This sounds awesome. And every year, right, thousands of people go Camping, right? They, they willingly choose, you willingly choose to be homeless for a number of days. <laughs> and we're just going to go live off the land. And then some of you, some of you are smart. You've upgraded. You say, oh, we got a trailer, right? We've, or an RV, like, oh, we're just going to move, literally move our home on wheels into dirt. And that is what we call glamping, <laughs> right? So we went camping uh, the few weeks ago. Uh, because that's what you do, and, and it, it really is fun. It's just, it's just funny. Um, because we, we're in our tent, and, uh, you know, we're sleeping on a mattress that is like a blow-up mattress. Like, this is nowhere near a real bed. We're going to sleep terribly. It's, it's going to be wonderful. And uh, at 3 in the morning, I'm out. I'm passed out, right? Because I'm, I'm just tired from the day of sitting around a fire. And, uh, and my wife wakes me up. She says, hey, there's a bear outside our, our, our tent hold on, what did you, I'm, you know, doing this whole like, what? There's a bear outside our tent. And I'm like, shh. And you're listening, right? I don't hear anything. Quiet. And here's what's crazy. You've probably had a feeling like this before. Maybe not a bear, but some, you know, mythical creature is outside your tent and ready to pounce on you. And, and here's what's, what's also, what's so funny to me is we think like, like, Again, this tent material, that'll protect us. <laughs> Don't leave the tent because he can't get through these walls. <laughs> so I'm, we're quiet. I don't hear anything. He's like, I'm telling you, the dog, our dog, we took our dog, right? Our dog was sniffing outside. There's a bear out there. Okay, 
you know what, honey? I'm going to be a man. I'm going to check this out. I've got the smallest flashlight you can find and a pocket knife that's very dull. And I'm, I'm coming, right? So I go outside and I'll admit my heart rate's going. I'm like, a bear, there's a bear. Now, I'm thinking in my head, there's a 95% chance there's no bear. But there might be. We did choose to be homeless, right? So we're out in the woods. So I go out, I unzip. I'm like, ha, nothing. Go around the tent. I'm like, all right, I did the man thing, right? I went and checked on the threat. There's no threat. Or he, ran, he probably ran away when he saw the amount of testosterone coming out of the tent. <laughs> so I don't want nothing to do with that. So he probably ran. So I go back in. There's no bear. I went around. We're safe. Nothing can get us, right? The next day we get up and, and you know, now there's light because in, in, when, there's, when it's dark, like anything's possible. Now I'm getting up and I'm going around and I'm like, there's no bear tracks. There's nothing in the sand or the dirt. Or like, I, there's nothing. There's no claw marks. There's no like, you know, there's nothing. There's no scat. That's what, that's what you call it when you're out in the woods, scat. It's the, the bear remains. You know what that is. Uh, and like, there's nothing. I go, Megan, there's nothing. There was, it, I don't know. And then she hears the noise again. It was a flap of our tent rubbing against itself, <laughs> making this whoosh, 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 whoosh. Like, I found your bear. I'll take care of it, I promise. Now, here's what's crazy. When there's no light, when it's three in the morning, that sound is terrifying because you don't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? And any sound that shouldn't be there, anything that doesn't make sense, I, I don't know. And, and fear comes in and I'm like, I was genuinely like ready and afraid of there could be a bear out here and it was just our tent making a noise because it's just, you know, just a lovely tent. And, and all of a sudden now there's light in the morning. It's like, seriously, we're afraid of that? Now listen, we're gonna read through chapter 11 and it's gonna feel a lot like that. That if you are in the dark, this is scary. And this is sort of unknown and can be terrifying. But when God illuminates and lets us know here's what's happening, there's a, there's a, a surprising amount of calmness that comes over us because it's, it, it's no longer the fear of the unknown. It's okay, I know what's coming. I'm okay and, and it'll be all right. I can see now. So what we see in the dark, we could say this, God sees very clearly. What is unknown to us, God says, oh, I know, I know all about that. I know all about what's, what's next. It's not unknown to me. You may be terrified, but I promise I'm not. So we're going to be in chapter 11, and this is a really intense chapter, um, and it lines up incredibly with world history, and, and we, we just, honestly, we don't have the time to go through all of it because uh, it's just, it's, there's so much in here. And, and what's incredible is that this is written hundreds of years, 300 years plus before the events take place. In fact, it's so accurate what we're going to read in, in various parts of this that there's a lot of critical scholars who claim this had to be written after the fact because there's no way Daniel could have gotten this ahead of time. There's just no way he could have known this is what's coming. 
It's so detailed and so specific. This had to have been, this had to have been written by someone else after these events had happened because there's just no way. There's no way. So let's look at this. It's almost as though God knows what we do not. And, and, and we're gonna see the chapter laid out in various sections. So here it is. I think this will go on the screen. The first section is in regard to Persia. And, and if you remember in Daniel's time, he's in Babylon. And the next, uh, the next kingdom that's gonna follow that is the Medo-Persians. The Persians are gonna conquer. And so um, there's a verse about the Persians. And then following them is Greece. So Greece is talked about in verses three and four in this passage. And we'll look at this and, and it's, it's almost obvious once we've established in the rest of the chapter, who is who, it, it just jumps out. And then we get to the section that is, if you've read on your own, is probably confusing, but it's about two different, uh, two different kingdoms. It's about Egypt in the south and Syria in the, in the north. And this is, we'll look at who this is, but this is the Ptolemies in, the, in Egypt and the, the Seleucids of the north. These are two of the four kingdoms broken up from, if you remember, uh, Alexander the Greatest Kingdom gets broken into four parts. These are two of them, and we'll look at them here in a second. And then there's a section about this guy that we've mentioned before, and he shows up again. Uh, and thankfully, commentators are almost all unanimous, really, in that this is, this is what it's referring to. And it's this guy named Antiochus IV, also known as Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes shows up in verses 21 to 35. And then there's a change in verses 36 to, to the little part of, ver, of chapter 12, which we'll look at next week. Um, there's a description of this, this other king and it's referred to as the king who exalts himself. There's a, another person who shows up. So here's what we see. Now we're gonna go through this and here's what I want you, as we're reading through this and looking at various parts, I want you to know this. God knows the big picture and the details. That God just doesn't know, like, generally speaking, what's going to happen in the future. Like, ah, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. God knows the big picture. He knows the overall story. But then he also knows, like, the specifics of, listen, I'm going to tell you very specifically, this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then this guy's going to do this. And then these ships are going to come and sail over here. And then they're going to attack this guy. I mean, it's like laid out so specific. God knows the big picture and the details. Okay, so starting in verse two, this is about Persia. It says this, Daniel chapter 11, verse two. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia. That's exactly what happens. And then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against who? The kingdom of Greece. This fourth king turns out throughout, when we look back at history, his name is Xerxes. You probably, maybe if you've studied history, you know about King Xerxes and, and he famously fights against, against Greece and specifically against the Spartans and, and, uh, and against Athens and against all of Greek. And, 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 and like you, you've probably seen movies about this. There have been plenty of movies made specifically about this godlike figure Xerxes fighting against Greece and against Sparta, right? This is Sparta. Like that's, all, that, that's what this is about. 
And then we move to from Persia, so there's just a snippet about this, to then, okay, now let me tell you about the kingdom that's after them. And this kingdom is Greece. And this follows in line with, the, if you've been following along with us, the rest of Daniel. And so it shows up that, that, uh, that Greece takes, takes center stage. Verses three, it says this, then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. And it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. This, this is none other than Alexander the Great, who we've looked at before, whose kingdom then is broken up into four different parts, specifically. And is divided into four parts and given to four different generals. Um, Alexander the Great dies at a young age of 32, and there's actually mystery around how he died. It could have been poison. It could have been an illness. It could have been a number of things. Um, uh, I, I read this week that uh, there's an article of new research that, that thinks that maybe he died of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and he got paralyzed, and they didn't, they didn't know he was dead or he was alive, and they, like, oh, he must be dead, and just buried him. That's an interesting way to go, right? So he dies at 32. He has no children of his own. So this divided up into four parts. Here's the map. This is what his kingdom looked like. Here's how it's divided. The two that we are concerned with are the yellow and the blue. The Seleucus, they're given to, the yellow part's given to General Seleucus. The blue is given to General Ptolemy. And these then start a succession of kings in, theirs, in their empires that will battle each other. And guess where they will battle? just so happens to be, if you, there's a red circle right here, this is Israel. They're gonna fight all of their battles where they meet and you can even see the colors like consistently change and, and there's like, they're trying to make home. So, so Israel becomes quite a battleground because the king of the north, the Seleucids, fights against the kings of the south, the, the Ptolemies or Ptolemaic kings. All right, you with me so far? Okay, here we go. Now, Egypt and Syria. Now, we're going to see these battles. We simply don't, we don't have time to look at all this. We're, like, honestly, I, your homework is to go, go home and read this section. Um, there's, there's so much in it, and it's, there's so much minute detail. In fact, there's, I read this week that there are 135 predictions in this section and the next that all come true. 135. Now, on a Sunday morning, there's just no way for us to go through each one and just see this happened and then this was predicted and this happened. This was predicted. And there's plenty of books and resources that line up both of them. And, and, and to a degree, like you almost have to read this part of the Bible along with a history book to see, wow, like they line up perfectly with what's described. Generally speaking, in this section, in verses 5 to 20, we see the kings of the north continually battle and win battles against the kings of the south. They're fighting, various kings from the north are fighting various kings from the south. They're all given the title, king of the north, king of the south, but they're not all the same person because the kingdoms change and it happens over time. And so there's kings that's, that replace other kings and they, they continue this sort of civil war of these Greek communities, these Greek kingdoms. They're all Greek, but they fight against each other. So the Seleucids up north are fighting against the Ptolemies, the kings of the south in Egypt. And we see that the kings of the north continually win because they simply have more resources. And this section ends with a guy named Antiochus III, not the fourth. 
and he, 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 uh, he ends up dying and, uh, and is replaced by another guy. But before he does, he creates, um, uh, he, he offers his daughter in hand in marriage to the king of the south to say, all right, you know what? I'm going to defeat you by, by political means and through marriage. And so he offers, this is, this is interesting, it's fascinating. So he offers his daughter to marry, he's the king of the north and he offers his daughter to marry the king of the south. And his daughter's name is, you've heard of her name, Cleopatra. So he offers his daughter, Cleopatra. She's probably between 10 and 14 years old. It's a different practice back then. And she's offered to the king of the son of the king of the south. And he's probably around 14 to 16 years old as well. But it doesn't work, but they still get married. He still doesn't conquer them. And she ends up falling in love with this other king. So she's like, dad, sorry, I can't help you. I love this guy, right? It's this is just probably how it ends up in families today. Don't marry that guy. She does, she falls in love with him. Sorry, dad. I'm, okay, welcome to the family. <laughs> Great. And, and so this happens, but she starts, listen to this, ready? This you probably don't know. This isn't the Cleopatra you're thinking of. She starts a dynasty, a line of Cleopatras. They continually have daughter and daughter and daughter and daughter. And each generation, she is named Cleopatra. And we eventually get to Cleopatra VII. That's the one you know of. Seven generations of Cleopatras. And this is the one who famously has the love triangle between Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, right? Movies, and you're like, Cleopatra from, from Egypt. Yes, her great, 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 is it right? Grandmother is this Cleopatra. So that he, did, there are, he offers his hand, and it's written about specifically in chapter 11, but it doesn't work. And then he dies and is replaced, eventually replaced by this guy we're gonna talk about now, Antiochus IV. And this is where we wanna like, really look, look at specifically what happens. He's known as Epiphanes. This is now the fourth section in this chapter, and it says this, he will be uh, succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. He was a master of intrigue and deception and espionage. He wasn't a great, uh, a great military leader, but, but he was able to conquer through deceit. He too fights the kings of the south and, and, and wins a lot of battles, but both sides lose men. And, and so it, we're, we're told that, that they will come to the table to have a discussion. This is fascinating in the book in chapter 11, that these two kings will come to sit at the same table and it says, and will lie to each other. And then we'll, and, but it won't work. These two kings sit down to come to an agreement. This happens in real life. This is actually history, but both lie to each other. And, they, they, and then, uh, so they eventually go their own ways in part and, and, and they can't come to an agreement. Eventually, over the next few years, Antiochus decides I'm going to invade Egypt again. He says, all right, now I'm gonna fight this guy. All right, it's time. So he does. And while he's there, um, he, uh, he meets someone else. He's not successful in his invasion of Egypt this time. And it, we see in Daniel chapter 11, verse 30, it says this, ships of the Western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Now, guess who these ships are? Any idea? These ships 
or Rome. Rome shows up. Uh, just the name Rome makes you shudder. Back then, you, you, you see these ships and, and Rome shows up as a powerful force in history and the Roman, the specific Roman com- uh, commander, uh, Popilius Linus, famously, uh, famously approaches Antiochus and says, all right, here's the deal. We've got a lot of good guys on our side and we can defeat you easily. We've made an, uh, an agreement with the kings of the south, with the Seleucids, so with Egypt. So we're giving you an option. Turn around and go home right now or fight and we will kill you. So Antiochus, this is great. Antiochus says, can I have a minute to think about it? I need some time, right? Which is fair, right? Hold on, let me weigh my options. Let me count your men. Let me count my men. So this Roman commander famously, he's famous for this. He draws a circle in the ground with a stick around Antiochus, right? Around, and he says, make your decision by the time you leave this circle. He says, literally, he says, decide before you exit this circle. He's like, I'm, I'm giving you, this is the equivalent of like the parent countdown. I'm giving you the count of three, <laughs> right? And then you decide what you're gonna do. And he's, I'll wait. And Antiochus, of course, backs down. He loses heart, like we're told in scripture, and he goes back home humiliated in defeat. What a great line though, right? Decide before you exit the circle. Um, you're gonna have an opportunity to do this later today when, when you guys have to decide what you wanna do for lunch and no one can decide. Try this out, right? What do you want for lunch? I don't know. All right, you have until you exit this circle to decide what we are eating, right? Uh, try it out, let me know how it goes, and then I'll wait to hear from you if I should try that. <laughs> so he goes back home, and then it says this. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. Now, it's, now he's targeting specifically God's people. He goes back home, and he's mad, so he takes it out on God's people, Israel, the Jews. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Those who actually turn away from their faith. All right, I'm gonna show favor for you Jews who who come to my side. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and he will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up You've heard this term before maybe in this, in this chapter or in this book, but also um, in future reference to end times. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people, look at this, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Antiochus returns humiliated and he takes it out on God's people. He stops their sacrifices. He prevents them from from, uh, absorbing the Sabbath. He even sets up his own altar in the temple, the holiest place, and decides, I'm gonna slaughter a pig and desecrate the temple, this, this abomination. He will deceive with flattery, but, but there are some who know their God and they resist him. This is often referred to as the, the, the Maccabean revolt. You've heard of this term maybe. And this is when a group of faithful Jews say, no, 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 we've had enough. And they fight back and they eventually retake 
the temple, retake Jerusalem, and they reinstitute the the uh, the practice of sacrificing to the right the, the sacrifice the daily morning and evening sacrifices, and 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 they observing Sabbath, and they get back to this is what God wanted for us as people. We can do this again. And people today all over the world celebrate this every year, today even. This is, we've referenced this, I think, a few weeks ago. This is known as Hanukkah. This is eight days of celebrating the reclaiming of the temple. That's what's happening right here, chapter 11. It's predicted hundreds of years before it happens. But then something different happens. In verse 36, up to this point, scholars pretty much are all unanimous and agree this is just history. This is just following along. And all of it fits perfectly with what, what we look back and say, this, this actually happened. Shockingly, surprisingly, accurately. But verse 36 comes and there's not really a transition in the language, in the literature. So it's, it's hard to see this transition in the scriptures, but, but there seems to be a shift and there's a number of reasons we think that there's a shift. Uh, first, because later in a few verses in the next chapter, it will start talking about at the end, in the end of time. It's, we seem to be fast forwarding now to a, a different time period that doesn't fit with what happened in, Antiochus, in, in Antiochus's life. We're gonna see that, it, that there's a third king who shows up. He's not the king of the north or the king of the south. He's just referred to as the king. This now is the king who exalts himself. He's not given a name. He's not given a title, but he shows up on the scene. It seems to point to this future character who maybe we better know as, maybe you've heard as, the Antichrist. And, and again, depending on the lens you wear, how you read this, if you're a futurist, you think this is end times is future and there's a future antichrist coming in. And, and you can make that argument. Like we look in scripture and we say, yeah, that, that makes sense. This is, this is where I personally land and say, it seems to be future. Some of these events predicted. And this now shows up and, and, and most, at least evangelical conservative scholars all say, yeah, this is referring to a future antichrist who comes in the same way Antiochus did, in the same vein, in the same kind of, uh, uh, the same level in which he, he, per, he persecuted God's people, this future king will do the same. It says this in verse 36, the king, this is a new king, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods, against Yahweh against God. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. Okay, this, that seems to be talking now about the time of wrath, maybe even a tribulation might be in reference here. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors. The gods of old, the gods of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nope. And then he says this, or for the one desired by women. That's an interesting phrase. And, and it can mean, I think, one of two things. The first option is, um, it, it might be, you know, you can insert your preferred Hollywood hunk here. Like I read this and I'm like, is it referring to like being in awe, like those that, that are just 
really attractive men who maybe, you know, maybe they go fight bears outside their tents. I don't know. No, that's not what I was referring to here. It's not like some you know, cultural reference to like, oh, the one, like, the one that just, women, women just, they, they just fall over. For, no, no, no. This is probably a veiled reference to the Messiah. That the one born of a woman, and here it's referenced as the one desired of women, specifically this, this other one who's gonna show up. And the reason we think that is because it's, it's sandwiched between two statements about deity, about God. So this is probably a reference to another God. And it says this, nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. It seems to be that this king, this future king says, I'm actually, I'm actually above every God and above every religion and above every faith. I am actually better than God himself. Now, if this is future, which I think it is, there will be a person who steps on the scene who will make that claim. And not like some kook, like, like just thinking they're Jesus, but like a, a, a serious world power authority leader who says, I'm actually deity. I know I look like a human, but I'm not. I'm above all the other gods. Now that sounds crazy, except for the fact that he actually is in control and actually does deceive people and get people to follow him. And it says this, instead of them, instead of these gods, he will honor a, a different God, a God of fortresses. Now, before we say like, this is a made up God, I, I think this is real. I don't think it's an actual God, but I think, I, and when we read the scriptures, when we read, like, when you look at this, that this is probably a demonic evil spirit that shows up and he begins to worship this other spirit. It says, a God unknown to his ancestors, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Now, before we think, oh, that's just some made up thing. This, he's, just, he's just worshiping a false God that isn't real. Let's read the next verse. He will attack the mightiest fortresses. He will attack the, the greatest empires, the greatest countries in the world with the help of a foreign God. There's an, oh, so this foreign God actually helps him. Now, again, this isn't a God like when we think of God, but some spirit that he's worshiping that assists him in his takeover and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, those who submit to this, this figure, this king. All right, I'll give you some honor. You bow down before me, great. He will make them rulers over many people and distribute the land at a price. Revelation 13 talks a lot about this, this person who shows up on the scene. And, and this person isn't just like ruling a small area or territory. This person actually politically rules and runs the world, everything. And is now deciding to divvy up who goes where based on bribes, based on money. And, and before, we, before you begin to think like, okay, this sounds crazy, two things. First, wow, before this, Daniel has been incredibly accurate in predicting history. It would make sense then that, that maybe this future is actually also an accurate prediction. And the second, it doesn't seem too far from the truth that, that nations or even leaders of nations would, 
would line up with another person, another dictator. In fact, we've seen this happen throughout history. We have fought world wars over guys much like this that garnered other countries to submit to them. And, and right, uh, the first guy that comes to mind is, we all know of Hitler. This sounds a lot like what Hitler did, but maybe even more, maybe even far worse. So he does this, and then it says in verse 40, at that time, the king of the south will engage him in battle. Egypt will fight him in battle. And the king of the north will storm, Syria will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of sheeps, uh, of ships. Sheeps? That's, that's a quick battle. You take sheeps to battle, it doesn't, you don't last long. That's not, this is not, that's not wise. He takes ships instead. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He actually wins. This is, there's, there's no one that can withstand him. Many, and then it says this, um, he will also invade the beautiful land. That is a reference we know to Israel. He invades Israel. Now, can you imagine just in today, now in 2021, any, any political force, any military force invading Israel, Okay, you know what that means? The world is at war, right? You invade Israel and now all of Israel's allies are, well, we're coming to help. And then all of Israel's opponents, well, we're coming to help with the other guy. And it becomes this, this incredible world, what we call it, World War Three. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. This is the, a number of, um, of, uh, of nations right out, like on the outside of, uh, of Israel. And so they won't be taken control of. Great. And this is this. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of, of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and, and, uh, and Cushites in submission. Now, again, this is getting very specific, is it not? It isn't just like, ah, in the end, there will be some battles and some fights. Oh, God seems to know not just the big picture. He knows specifically the details about what's gonna happen. But it says this, reports from the east and the north will alarm him. He will set out, in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will, and then it says that he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at, uh, at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. He starts this world war and eventually he puts home base in Israel between the seas and the holy mountain. The holy mountain is often referred to as Jerusalem. And so this guy sets up his battle here and he sets up home base. In Revelation, we see that there's, uh, there's gonna be a number of, uh, of, in the end times, again, if you're a futurist thinking this is future, um, in a, at a place that's often referred to as Armageddon. You've heard of this? There's a movie about it, but it has nothing to do with this. It's about a meteor. It's, the, it's a great movie, but it has nothing to do with this. Armageddon is this place um, where this, apparently this final battle will take place. And um, I've actually been there. You can go there. It's, it's beautiful. I, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I'll show you photos maybe next week. So you come back and see some photos of, of Armageddon. It's actually uh, uh, the valley of, it's called the Valley of Megiddo. It's Har Valley of 
Megiddo, Har Megiddo, where we get the word Armageddon, right? So this valley of Har Megiddo, this place is in this valley called the Jezreel Valley, and it's this huge open area, and you can just see, like, again, this is referring to that. If this is future, then, then these kings of the north and the kings of the south will come and fight this other king right in this spot. It's a little eerie to be there. They have a, a wonderful little lookout that they build. Like it's like this beautiful, peaceful area. It's like farmlands and, you know, cows and stuff. You're like, this is really nice. You know, we should get property here. Don't, don't buy property in the Valley of Megiddo, please, okay? So this guy starts this war and eventually it says, yet no one will come to his, uh, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Eventually, he is overtaken. God ends him and no one is left to help him. What we see in the dark, God sees clearly and he shows us, he writes it down here in chapter 11 to say this is what's coming. God knows the big picture and he knows the details. Now, if that's true here, now here's where it applies to us. You're like, okay, that was a great history lesson. I learned a lot, so what? Ready? Here it is. God knows the big picture and the details. And if he knows the big picture and the details of what's coming, then it makes sense that you and I can trust God with the big, the big picture and the details of our lives. This isn't true just in Daniel's day, like God knew about this, but he doesn't know the rest. Listen, you in your life, like, like wherever you live and whoever you know and like where you work and, and where you go to day in and day out and the schools you go to to drop kids off and like all of that, everything, God knows both the big picture of your life. You're all right, I know what's gonna happen in your life and I know all the specifics. I know all the details. And you, you may not. It may feel like it's dark out and, and everything is terrifying and I don't know what's out there. Just keep me in my little tent and I'll be fine. And God says, no, 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 I promise. I know what's coming. I know the big picture and I know the details. So you and I say, all right, Lord, I trust you. This is where you and I now get to decide our involvement. I decide, all right, God, I can trust you. I don't know the future. I see it written down. I, we're not given the time of when this will happen, but, but even, even in the midst of all of this and, and what we read about here, and, and if some of you, like you've studied Revelation and you read that and you get, it's really easy to get worked up and, or, or scared of what's coming or, or try to, to line up, well, this is what's gonna happen. This is what we need to be on the lookout for and, and get kind of like almost in a frenzy of we need to talk to people about, we need to get rid of, hold on, hold on. You and I can trust God in the big picture and the details of our lives, of the future, of all of it. Trust is not easy. Instead, we're good at something else. You and I are really good at fear. Fear of the unknown, um, fear of the future, fear of not being in control, all of it. You and I are really good. And not knowing the details leads to fear, especially when it comes to the future, especially when it comes to our future. I don't know what's next. And all of a sudden, this, this thing creeps in that you, you felt before, you'll feel again, called fear. But it comes back to our question, how much does God know? How much does he know? Well, he knows all that can be known, so God knows the big picture and the details. He sees things clearly that we don't. 
And now for us, how much of God do you know? This, that one verse in here that's like, and, and those who, who knew God, those who knew him resisted. <laughs> There's a description of people specifically in here who didn't know about God. It was personal. This is God. Those who knew their God. I, I wonder, could you be described in this way? Can you trust him? Have you put your faith in him? Have you chosen to follow him? Have you gotten to a point where you said, I'm in? All right, I'm in. I want to know you. I want to follow you. Have you come to faith in Christ? Have you given your life to Jesus? Have, are you, do you know for certain your sins are paid for? Because if not, you can. <laughs> you can today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close and then we're going to sing one last worship song together. Um, but before we do, would you, would you stand? And I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to pray to the God who knows the big picture and the details. Who knows the big picture of human history, but also your life. And he knows the details of what's coming up next in the world events, but he also knows the details specifically of your life. So would you do this? Would you bow with me? So uh, before, before I pray, I wanna just give you an opportunity here. Um, uh, some of you are, are at a place where you, you're saying, I need to trust God more. I need to trust God with my big picture and with the details of my life. And, and maybe you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you have been a long time, but maybe there's a lot of fear creeping in. Maybe there is a lot of fear of the unknown, fear of your future, fear of what's next. Maybe it's, it's personal. Maybe it's political. Maybe it's the world state. Maybe it's just, you're just, you fear for what's happening nationally. Whatever it is, there's this level of fear and you're saying, God, I, I don't wanna live by fear. You didn't give us a spirit of fear, but instead of power, control, and sound mind, discipline and sound mind. So I want, I want that. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Just slip your hand up and say, Lord, I, I, I'm just increase my trust, decrease my fear. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Lord, there's a, there's a number of us in here who are saying, God, I need to trust you more and trust who you are instead of my fear of the unknown. So I pray for us and myself included, Lord, if there's times where fear creeps in, remind me to say, I trust not in my circumstances, I trust in God and God alone. I trust in your future, my, my future in you, my big picture and the details of my life, I trust in you. Now, some of you maybe have never put your faith in Jesus. I want to give you that chance now. And, 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 and you're saying, you know what? I've never, I've never really taken this seriously, but I want to. You can just pray along with me something like this. God, I admit I'm a sinner. I am imperfect and far from it. And right now, I believe that Jesus died for me to save me, to forgive me of my sins, to pay the price I couldn't. And right now I commit my life 
to you. Will you make me a new person and save me? Lord, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word that we see in Daniel and and how accurate it is to both world history but also our future and, and, and what's, what's next. You, you've laid it out. Help us to trust in you, that you know what you're doing and you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's worship.